I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest is Jean Houston. All the stories and even the great fairy tales have wounding because wounding opens us to the larger life. It gives us the pain, the suffering that allows us to go deeper and further if we don't get caught into limited, uh, circular uh, dislike of what has happened to us, resentment. I sometimes think that as baby-making occurs with a mutual wounding of the ovum and the sperm, so soul-making occurs with the wounding of the human psyche, quite possibly by the gods. And by the gods, I mean the great creative evolutionary potencies that are yearning for us to get on with the rest of our story, to increase the amplitude of our humanity. Dr. Jean Houston, scholar, philosopher, and researcher in human capacities, is one of the foremost visionary thinkers and doers of our time. She is long regarded as one of the principal founders of the Human Potential Movement. Thirty-six years ago, along with her husband, Dr. Robert Masters, Dr. Houston founded the Foundation for Mind Research. She is also the founder and principal teacher of the Mystery School, a program of cross-cultural, mythic, and spiritual studies dedicated to teaching history, philosophy, the new physics, psychology, anthropology, myth, and the many dimensions of human potential. Welcome, Jean. Thank you, Anthony. I've heard you use this term in other interviews, but what is jump time? <laughs> jump time is where we're at, Anthony. Jump time is my phrase to describe the period of time that we're in, the sim- simply the most interesting time in human history. Other times in history thought they were it, they're wrong, this is it. It's a time of punctuated equilibrium, to use the term that is used in evolutionary biologist, evolutionary scientist, that refers to when you look at the fossil record in certain fossils, you see for thousands of years, sometimes even million, almost millions of years, the fossil looks pretty much the same until suddenly, within very few generations, it jumps. It becomes uh, something more complex. Uh, it's, it's very different. And I'm suggesting that historically, with us, with we human beings, that we are in just such a phase of punctuated equilibrium, what some people are calling a singularity in history, that things are as they never were before. Today looks nothing like tomorrow, and certainly a good deal less than yesterday. More and more history is happening faster and faster. We are in a state of whole system transition, and what we do will profoundly make a difference as to whether we grow or die. I mean, just consider all the things that have changed since 1945. It's been thought that as much history, in fact, more history has occurred since the time of Christ to 1945 as has occurred from 1945 till today. And so that's what I call jump time. And, of course, I have a book by that subject. Mm-hmm. And uh, Terence McKenna would call it um, novelty. Yes. The increase in novelty. In one of your books, you're talking about social artistry as a meme. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about social artistry. Well, social artistry is a term that I devised years ago, and I probably devised it with my old friend Margaret Mead. I think that's probably the first time I used it. And a social artist is someone who brings the same kind of passion and commitment and skills that a good artist brings to his or her material. But in the terms of the social artist, the canvas is human society. 
and a social artist is someone who can work across cultures, can enter into other cultures' ways of being, belief structures, ways of knowing, perspectives, feeling states. Uh, a social artist can help cultures or people or organizations discover the deeper story that is trying to emerge with them. Uh, the social artist is a paradigm pioneer, really sees the emerging forms, the jump mm -hmm. forms, if you will. The social artist is a lifelong learner. The social artist is one who has continues to develop his or her inward capacities, all manner of inward capacities, sensory capacities, psychological capacities, symbolic capacities, and ultimately spiritual capacities, and brings this great spectrum to capital capacities to bear upon societies or organizations. So that, for example, I myself, a social artist, one of my roles is as senior consultant to the United Nations, especially the UNDP, in human development. And I bring a cadre, a team with me to different countries where we work with leaders, literally in many underdeveloped countries or least developed countries. And uh, what we <clears throat> bring is ways of working to these leaders so they are developing their human capacities in the light of social complexity. So they're not bringing old mind to bear upon new matter. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this, <clears throat> though, also, that um, with social artistry, you also draw from the cultures you visit. Absolutely. You find the key stories of the culture, the songs, the dances, the arts, the crafts. I mean, if you were to come into a social artistry uh, seminar I was running for leaders, let's say, in Albania, you would be surrounded by Albanian art. You would be hearing Albanian music. You would be hearing Albanian stories. For example, when I was in Albania, <clears throat> I was looking for a great story that would evoke the people of Albania, and I found a story that was at least a 1,000 years old. Now, remember that Albania up uh, after 1945, was essentially taken over by a terrible despot named Arnsvars Hoksha, who was a Stalinist, and who cut out the rest of the world from Albania. You go into Albania today and you see thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of great concrete bunkers, great concrete looking like poisonous mushrooms, because he told them that the country was considered to be the most valuable country in the world and everybody wanted to come there. And so they had to protect themselves. So he took the money that was to go for the benefit of the country and he turned it into these horrible bunkers. Well, the people finally got rid of those, you know, those people and now they are very much on the upswing again. But they didn't have a story. So I looked into Albanian history and I found a tremendous story which I used as the basis to weave social artistry training. The story is a classic one of the king and queen and the lovely princess of this magnificent country and a demon, there always has to be a demon or there's no story, sees this beautiful princess, abducts her, <clears throat> and the king and queen are just bereft with grief and they say if any man can come forward and rescue her and if she agrees they can marry. Well, not one man, but seven men, seven noble brothers show up the classic seven, and they all have unusual qualities. So the first brother, for example, can hear anything. He has tremendous senses, and that allows us to give them exercises to really develop their inner and outer senses. And he hears where the demon is snoring under the earth. And the second brother has the capacity to open the earth anywhere so that they're able to find the poor princess who is shackled away in the corner and the demon who's off snoring. 
and that allows us to look at the depth structures of the of the culture to go deeper and deeper into the great treasures and <clears throat> cultural capacities that are there that people have forgotten about and he's able to say here she is and the third brother has the gift of abstraction he is able to abstract to steal anything from one place and take it to the other so naturally he steals the princess that allows us to look at the essence of the culture or the essence of people the deep spiritual basic primary <clears throat> genius of the culture or of the people the fourth brother can hurl anything a great distance so he takes the demon's magic shoe that allows him to travel great distances in seconds and he hurls it a huge distance and they get the heck out of there and that allows us to look at the shadow the shadow of the culture the shadow of the self how we hurl what we do with our shadows the fifth brother can build an impregnable castle in moments and he does so so they're all hidden that allows us to look at infrastructure or ways of helping each other to create new projects new patterns but of course the demon comes looking for his shoe finds the impregnable castle says oh please please i don't need to take her away but let me just see her for one last moment so they open up a little chink being compassionate but innocent fellows and whoop he is a shapeshifter he goes in he steals her he shapeshifts her and he goes flying off but the sixth brother is an incredible a formidable marksman and he has the power of utter focus and intention and he takes his bow and arrow and he shoots the demon and that is of course <clears throat> allows us to study focus intention passionate availability and courage of the follow through for all the projects of the country or people and the seventh brother youngest and handsomest as the gift of catching anything that is falling <clears throat> so he catches the falling princess and of course they live happily ever after and that allows us to find ways of sustainability for the society so that's one way that i work what a wonderful story mm. how did the leaders receive this tremendously it was uh, over <clears throat> quite a few days mm-hmm. that they were actually uh, we actually did lots of training lots of training around right. but using the story as the template upon which to weave many many exercises that had to do <clears throat> not just with the story and with the albania but also of bringing the millennium development goals to albania to fulfill them to get rid of substantially by the year 2015 to get rid of a lot of poverty to uh, to bring out gender equality to greatly reduce childhood mortality or uh, mothers motherhood mother mortality to <clears throat> extend education up to a certain age for most people to um to bring about a, a sustainable ecology to create partnerships with other countries or or donor groups and you see that's something else we're doing to try to improve and to begin to expedite the millennium development goals in each of these countries where at the same time we are activating the innate capacities of leaders because otherwise when you go around the world you find that so many leaders have been trained to be white males of the year 1926 they have not been trained for the extraordinary capacities that are needed in today's very complex world well and they lose the the very national treasure of the ground upon which they've been born that's why we always try to mythologize rather than pathologize wherever we are oh that's a lovely phrase my goodness so and in 
attending your workshop, you do a lot of exercises. So you bring these things into the body. Yes. You bring myth into the body. We, we bring myth into the body. We bring body into myth. A myth is something that never was but is always happening. A myth is the coded DNA of the human psyche that says it's time to wake up now. And so myth will carry us, a great story will carry us further, faster, deeper than just doing a series of exercises. And yet, in actually embodying those, in, in embodying the myth and the exercise, it's made real. It's made conscious. It's made um, much more available than just theorizing about it. Becomes it becomes the experience. Myth is that beautiful country that lures us into our becoming. And it, it, it flows in our bloodstream. It is there in our bones and marrows. I was a close friend of Joseph Campbell, and we did many, many seminars together. And he really believed that myth was coded in the body. It was there in our, in our natural physiological processes. Oh, And, that and was... I would have to say, quite frankly, and there's a lot to it. I mean, I once made a study of... Uh, very young children, two and three years old, children who were talking, speaking, and, but who had never been exposed to radio or television. Now, that was very hard to find, but I did find some on farms. You know. And I would ask them to tell me stories. And I'll never forget a little boy named Jimmy. He was three years old. He was very talkative. And I said, Jimmy, tell me a story. I don't know any stories. Yes, you do. Tell me a story, Jimmy. What kind of story? Well, a new story. Okay, okay. Once upon a time, there was a little boy. Oh, that's very nice. And he had a mommy. Uh-huh. And he loved his mommy. Oh, sweet. So he married his mommy. Uh-oh. And they had many babies. I go play with doggy now. No, 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 Jimmy, you come back. You come back. What happened next? I don't remember. You do, you do remember, you do. What happened next, Jimmy? Uh, he went away. Who did he go away with? His sister. And what happened next? I don't remember. You do remember, Jimmy. What happened next? They went everywhere, and people came up to him, and he helped them. He talked to them. He talked to everybody, and he helped them. And then what happened? Everybody liked him again. I go play with Doggy. And this little child was telling me Oedipus Rex. Yes. But he was going way beyond Freud and the complex of the man who, as the tremendous words of Sophocles, who, who plows in the land in which he has been furrowed, in which he has been born. But he was telling me the rest of the story, such as Sophocles tells, where Oedipus wanders blind, led by his sister daughter, Antigone. And they wander, and people come up to him and say, Oedipus, you who have gone the limit of sin, you I can tell everything to. And so he wanders blind, helping people, talking, understanding, growing in, in depth and insight and compassion until he finally comes to the grove of colonists outside of Athens with a young priest king. Theseus says, welcome, great man, welcome, you who have suffered and who have learned so much. Stay with us here and be the wise man of Athens and help us. And Oedipus says, thank you, I will. 
and Athens becomes the first Western town where the soul of man touches the sky with the help of Oedipus. And then the gods say, well, you know, these, these, these people like Oedipus, you know, they're frightfully sophisticated. They've had so much experience. You know, we do need a shrink of our own. We do need a therapist. Let's bring back Oedipus. And there's a tremendous earthquake, and Oedipus is lifted up, and Oedipus becomes a godling, helping and being the therapist of the Olympian gods. That's the full story. That's And that little incredible. boy was telling it to me. And he'd never yeah. seen TV or... I no, mean, it's not. out of the earth. It's out of the earth. The chthonic, chthonic, it is, it is out of the earth of oneself. We are coded with tremendous stories. I mean, truly, Anthony, you get beneath the surface crust of consciousness of virtually anybody. And you find that we are filled with wise old men, wise old ladies, rites of passage, death and resurrection. These stories are what Jung referred to as the ontological structures, the very organic patternings in the body-mind psyche system. We're going to have to take a quick break. I'm so sorry to have to take a break here. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host uh, today on Attunement. And how can people contact you, Gene? Well, they can go to my website, which is www.genehouston, one word, Houston spelled as in Texas, genehouston.org, and they'll see all kinds of um, things about our courses that we give, our mystery school, our social artistry program, books I've written. There are many, many, many iPod casts and, and those lectures, and, you know, it's, it's a pretty full site. Or if they want to, you know, be involved with any of our work, they can call us on 9 to 5 Pacific Time, Monday through Friday, at 541-488-1200. I live in Ashland, Oregon. 541-488-1200. But I recommend going to our website, genehouston.org. Great. And we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest is Gene Houston. So, Gene, before the break, you were talking about um, a little boy who was telling you this extraordinary story out of, and he had not had any exposure to radio or TV. That's correct. Um, one of the things that I did want to ask you is, what is our mythical story that we're living right now? Well, there are so many. We are living in the great uh, gathering of myths, aren't we, from all over the world. And they are shifting. For example, some years ago I was in India on a Sunday in a little village. And every village has a television set, often just one, at least in those days it did. It was about 10, 12 years ago. And on this set was being performed the, the, maybe the 17th in the series of the Ramayana, the great, great story of Rama and his beloved Sita and how they had been betrayed and uh, had to live in the forest for 14 years. And then a demon, Ravana, sees her and he abducts her and carries her off to Sri Lanka. And uh, uh, Rama brings together a great army of among other things, monkeys led by the great monkey Hanuman, and they are able to, you know, fight the demons and bring Sita back. And the one set that was hanging in the tree, it belonged to this old Brahmin lady, and people had come in with their water buffalo and tied them up, and we were sitting on the ground and watching this extraordinary story of such beauty, of such intensity, color, drama. I mean, Indian epic uh, visual 
video theater is phenomenal, some of the best in the world. And I was just sitting there just morbid with jealousy. If only we had something like that, watching this extraordinary thing. And the old Brahmin lady, who had very good English, turned to me and she said, oh, I don't like Princess Sita, she is much too passive. We women in India were much stronger than that. We have to change the story. I said, but madam, the story is at least 3,000 years old. All the more reason why we have to change it. It is a terrible example. My name is Sita, my husband's name is Rama, very common in India, he is a lazy bum. Anything happened, I'd have to rescue him. We have to change the story. And everybody was agreeing, <laughs> you know. And then after this magnificent pageant, what is downloaded from the satellite? In the <laughs> but dynasty! They've got 300 billion people in here watching this terrible thing. And I was so embarrassed. And the old lady turns to me. She says, oh, sister, don't be so embarrassed. Can't you see it is the same story? How can you say that? You've got the good lady. You've got the bad lady. You've got the good man. You've got the bad man. You've got the beautiful clothes. You've got good versus evil. Yes, indeed, it is the same story. And here was the world myth, you know, being charged and changed by these satellite downloads as the world mind is taking a walk with itself through this extraordinary exchange of stories. The story is changing. Um, it's no longer about the lonely heroine or hero, you know, on the vigil. It is often about men and women together and of different ages together and of different cultures and different ethnicities together. And often that which is being saved is the earth herself. The story is shifting. Yeah, and that's really mm -hmm. evident with, uh, with global warming. And Can you talk to us about the consciousness that you see arising as a result of the Internet? Yes, I've written a lot about that, actually, in my book, Jump Time. Um, it's an interesting concept. It is as if as I said, the world mind is taking a walk with itself, that you are prosthetically extended through your fingers to a huge range of people, experiences, ideas. I mean, what used to take me days and days of research, now I can pull together in a few hours. I mean, I'm talking about serious research, you know. Uh, I have, I've been on the Internet or in its early days, you know, the bulletin boards, since the 1970s. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a nerd. I mean, quite frankly, if I was 20 years younger, I would weigh 400 pounds, have, you know, bottle glasses and be popping Twinkies in my mouth. But I love it because it's the prosthetic extension of the soul, you know, throughout time and space. It's an extraordinary thing. So I think it is outreach. I think it is also allows us to stream our thoughts. We don't craft our thoughts to the same degree. So there's a lot of just, <laughs> you know, just, just the unfolding of, of when the minds matter. But it also calls us to relate, to interrelate, to create a tapestry of meaning with others. It gives us homes away from homes and that we have nodal networks of friends and people that we will never meet but who become part of our extended family. It is part of the world mind beginning to come together as we move, I think very slowly, but not so slowly either, but fairly surely to a planetary civilization with high individuation of culture by the end of the century. The world, you know, 90 years from now, 95 years from now, is not going to look anything like the world today. 
Well, I can imagine the change that has occurred in the last hundred years. Sure. It's just completely radical. Well, it's going to be even much more radical. It's accelerating. It is said that by the year 2040, our present science will be only 5% of what science will be. You see. Oh, my goodness. Now, terrible things could happen. I mean, the weather certainly could... Mother Earth could be, you know, shrugging her shoulders and we all fall off, you know, in one way or the other. Or these archaic uh, um, desires to build empire could destroy everything. And yet we're seeing really tremendous change. I am positive, and the reason I'm positive, and people say, why are you optimistic? I say, and this sounds like galloping chutzpah, simply because I have much more experience around the world than almost anybody around. I've worked in 100 countries. I have worked intensively in 40 cultures. And you know them intimately. Well, I know 40 cultures pretty well. A hundred countries is something else again. Mm-hmm. But, but <clears throat> what I do know is I see the shifts, and I see shifts in ways that other people are not seeing shifts. I can tell you something that is a worldwide phenomenon. Nobody is writing about it. Women of a certain age have been taking the lead everywhere in making the world work. Oh, is Women this part of what's age. showing up with those microloans? Oh, sure. No, well, that's, that's something else again. Okay. I'm talking about people who, I mean, some of these women have had the microloans, yes. Right. But uh, even more than that, it is women who are taking the initiative and the lead in making better worlds and making a better society. It is all over the world, and it is happening right now. That's so heartening to hear And that. that is something. There are many other shifts. I mean, the, the fact that people are reaching out to each other. The fact that the, the awfulness is so awful that nobody is hidden from it anymore, that two billion people live in abject poverty. I like the bumper sticker that says, if you're not, upset, if you're not upset, you're not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. But at the same time, people are being called to task. I mean, that's what this whole seminar uh, that I've been doing here is about, to, to igniting the fire so that one really begins to say yes to the higher tasks that are ours in our time. I mean, never before in history have we we been required to respond and to grow ourselves into a body-mind psyche system where we can say yes to what we're being called to do. But we have the means to do that, it seems. We do have the means now. I mean, in any given day when I'm home, I am in an outreach. Of course, I do get an awful lot of email. I get about 500 emails a day. But apart from that, of which some are really important, you know, I, I, you know, I'm I'm extended through space and time. If I were to say, uh, yesterday morning before I left for here, let's see, I was on a phone with Nepal. I was receiving emails and interacting with uh, three different countries in Africa, two in South America, three in Asia. Uh, you know, and this is part of my life. It's it's that I, my psyche, my uh, beingness is woven with the the beingness of so many others. It is the world mind taking a walk with itself. It is one of the biggest shifts in human history. And it is, as I said, a preparation for what the man that I used to know as Mr. Tayer, who I used to walk with when I was four, between my 14th and 17th year, who turned out to be Teilhard de Chardin, who lived across the street from me in New York City. He said, ah, Jean, the people of your time, you will be living in a newosphere, a field of the world mind. 
But you know, in, you must take the tiller of the world, but you cannot go direct more. You have to touch every culture, every people must be part of this great emerging field of mind and soul. Oh my, that's extraordinary. I'm Anthony Wright, and we're going to have to take a short break talking with my guest, Gene Houston. And can you give uh, your website again, please, Gene? Uh, www.genehouston, one word, dot org. And Houston is spelled as in Texas. Okay. Genehouston.org. Great. And we'll be right back after a short break. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and we're talking with my guest, Gene Houston. And you were talking about the good... Uh, the harbingers of good that you are seeing in many world cultures uh, across the globe today, even though it looks like there are some real significant um, challenges to human humankind. And can you talk some more about what those are and perhaps also what we as, as individuals uh, can do to facilitate this resonance? Well, I've mentioned two. I talked about the fact of media between Internet, iPods, smartphones, um, people being interconnected in ways that they never were before. I talked about the rise of women, too. And that's very important. That may be the single most important. And what you said of a certain age? Well, well, women of a certain age are doing a lot of the work in making a new world, and that just is a fact. But uh, but to extend from that, the rise of women to full partnership with men in the whole domain of human affairs may be the most significant event of the last four or 5,000 years. It very may be, because with women, the emphasis is on process rather than on product, on making things cohere, develop, on grow. And um, inner space, the subjective world is as equal to outer space, you see, mm-hmm. the objective world. Mm-hmm. This and, is a new development since Babylonia. Well, it's a very significant one, yes. And these things taken together really are making for a whole different systemic change. And in our lifetime, we're seeing it, along with terrible backlash, terrible backlash. When I, you know, Margaret Mead lived with us, the great anthropologist lived with us the last six years of her life off and on. And toward the last days, the last months, she got very feminist (laughs) and started to take me around to observe the few women who were heads of their corporations. And she said, now, Jane, watch these really good ones. They're not like, they're not second-rate men, like too many ladies in business are. They're not imitating men. You watch. And she said, watch how they braid their work. So we would watch the CEO as she would go through it, and she was preparing the quarterly report or whatever she was doing, but she was stopping at each desk. She was talking to people in great depth and asking about the families and, and really finding their deepest concerns and also calling them to new potentials that they didn't even know they had. I mean, she was braiding work, and it was fascinating. It was both as equal to the internal as it was to the external. And if you, you know, and I remember having lunch with Margaret and this corporate executive, And she talked about really uh, being available empathically to the needs of her employees and being able to think in different ways, to think about the company in pictures and words, heartfully, intuitively. You speak about radical empathy. This was radical empathy. And 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 Margaret said, is it working? And the lady said, well, yes, actually it is. I mean, some of the men don't understand, but it is happening. It is happening. And Margaret said, don't you watch, Jean, in the next 30 years, 
women are going to be the presidents, they're going to be the prime ministers, which certainly has been happening. Not here yet, but that well, may happen. But we have a Speaker of the House now. We've got a Speaker of the House. Um, and even the priests, <laughs> she thought, she said, because it is the inevitable necessity to have the balance if we are going to survive this planet, be on this planet and survive. Because we have become in our time the stewards of biological governance, which has requires in us a similar growth in kind so that we are adequate to this immense task. And it is quite extraordinary. It brings me again to my question about what can we do as individuals to, to further this kind of resonance? I think you wake up to the hound of heaven that's been going rough, at your ankles, you know, for some time now. And <laughs> you say it's saying, it's time to get on with it. Right. Um, uh, let me bring you back to November of 1978. I am sitting on the bed of the dying Margaret Mead. And she said, look, Jean, forget everything I've been teaching you about working with governments and bureaucracies. I said, now you tell me this, now. And she found it funny, too. She said, yes, I'm lying here being an anthropologist on my own dying. It is a fascinating experience. There is no hierarchy to it. But I realize if we're going to grow and green our time, it's a question of people everywhere getting together in small groups, teaching, learning communities, whether it's in their business, <clears throat> whether it's in the church, their family, teaching, learning groups. And then she said, in doing your kinds of exercises, Jean, or other people's exercises, but whatever it is, growing in together in, in a, you know, a curve, an upward curve of body, mind, and spirit, deepening, growing. And on the basis of that, then having the depth and the know-how to go out and take on some project in the community and to make a difference. But not to just jump in and do it, but to really let it ha come from inside out because of the very fact that, that they have extended their physical, their mental, their sensory, their psychological capacities. And they've done it together. And <clears throat> if they do it together, if they do it together, then they will grow together. No guru. Guru is spelled G. You are you. You know, it isn't, that's me. That's not her saying that. Right, but, right. But she says, and I know if we're going to grow and green our time, that's what it's going to take, teaching, learning communities. And she said to me and Jean, when the time is right, you go out and help set them up. And I have. I've set up or been responsible for hundreds all over the world. Right. No guru, no money involved, people really getting together and growing. All my books, I mean, I've got about 25 books out there, are really essential. Almost all of them are to help people find processes and exercises and things they can do to extend their inner space, to extend their capacity for creativity, to extend their radical compassion so that they can cross the great divide of otherness to be the possible humans. For it is only the possible human that can help create the possible society. And that's, that's what you're doing in the Mystery School, is it not? The Mystery School and the social artistry programs and the programs I do in leadership all over the world. One of the things that I heard you speaking about in the workshop today also was about downloads. Tell mm -hmm. us about downloads and how they work for people. Well, you know, creativity is going on all the time beneath the surface crust of consciousness. When I've had the good fortune to study people who have high sustainable creativity, 
among my research subjects, people who I studied closely for years were Joseph Campbell, Margaret Mead, Buckminster Fuller, Linus Pauling, Jonas Salk, and a lot of other people whose names you wouldn't know, about 55 of them, but who had sustained creativity. <clears throat> they were very different from each other, but they, ha each one of them had access to their own inner structures, inner capacities. They were spelunkers in the caves of their own creativities. They were archaeologists of their own mind. They thought in, well, they thought differently, but for example, a person like Margaret Mead, she thought in images, she thought in words, she thought intuitively, she thought with her whole body, you know. She was multimodal, and so were these others. So they would drop into their inner space. They would drop an idea into the inner space, and it would constellate and aggregate with the images that of their inner space or the feeling tones or the kinesthetic senses of the even the smell, the touch and taste, and the ideas would grow, and they could observe and be part of the creative process that was happening. It's called the automatisms of the creative process, the self-creating works of art or of knowledge that were happening all the time. But and I can train people to do that. It's very simple to train people to do Now, some people are weaker. For example, I used to put Joseph Campbell into trance. And to say, because I thought, hot dog, I'm going to have a front row seat on the creation of myth. And so I would hypnotize him, take him way down. And I'd say, so Joe, are you hypnotized? Are you down there? Oh, yes. Do you see anything? No. What do you mean you see nothing? I've never seen anything. What? I have never seen an image. But I'm kinesthetic. You know, he's a great athlete. I can feel it. And there's like a screen, and behind it I can feel what's happening. And thus he writes a book called The Hero's Journey because he was kinesthetic and not just the hero's symbol, you see. So we find that when people have developed these inner images, the inner seeing, inner tasting, inner touch, inner smell, and it's very easy to teach people to do that. And they are literally growing new muscles on the brain. They're growing new connections. And these connections then allow them to capture the creative process that is going on all the time beneath the surface crust of consciousness. And it's an organic process. It is an organic process. And it, it occurred to me in both of the things that you spoke about before, about with the world leaders and about with the communities, you don't force anything. There's not any kind of uh, momentum that you're trying to develop. You, you make a place for the development of the momentum to occur, and you wait. Mm -hmm. And it naturally... You become a midwife of soul, and a midwife does not try to hurry up the, the birth. You trust absolutely the creative process in a person. You do not try to force it. That was one of the things that I wrote down in my notes while I was listening to your, to your lecture earlier. is about that you're a midwife and you're teaching us to be midwives, to the creative process. The evocateurs to be, of the process. Yeah, to be sensitive to the pregnant ideas. Yeah. So, well, I'm Anthony Wright, and we're going to take a short break. And my guest is Gene Houston. And how can people get a hold of you, Gene? Well, they can go to my website, www.genehouston, that's one word, genehouston.org. Or if they're really desperate, <laughs> from 9 to 5 on Monday through Friday Pacific time at 541-488-1200. So we'll be right back. I'm Anthony Wright, and I'm your host today on Attunement, and my guest is Gene Houston. And in your seminar that I had the good fortune to uh, sit on, on for a few minutes um, this evening. You talked about wounding, and wounding is at the center of myth. 
Can you talk to us about that? Yes, I mean, you look at all the great mythic stories, and wounding is critical for the story. Otherwise, nothing happens. The hero, the heroine, is always wounded in some way. Uh, the great legends, the great uh, scriptural tales, look at scripture. Christ must have his crucifixion, otherwise there's no upsy-daisy. You know, he doesn't come back, and the story is finished. It's just a tragic story. Um, uh, Artemis must kill him who comes too close. Persephone must be married to the to darkness. Odin's eye. Uh, I mean, when you really when you really look at, I mean, Eros's burnt shoulder in the Psyche and Eros story. Merlin's uh, being uh, locked up uh, at a light in his life and being cut off. Uh, the caves, the caverns, the descents where you are stuck. Jonah swallowed by the whale. I mean, all the great stories have Hansel and Gretel lost in the forest, ending up at the witch's uh, cookie house where they can be destroyed. I mean, all the stories and even the great fairy tales have this wounding because wounding opens us to the larger life. It gives us the pain, the suffering that allows us to go deeper and further if we don't get caught into limited, uh, circular uh, dislike of what has happened to us, resentment. I sometimes think that as baby-making occurs with a mutual wounding of the ovum and the sperm, so soul-making occurs with the wounding of the human psyche, quite possibly by the gods. And by the gods, I mean the great creative evolutionary potencies that are yearning for us to get on with the rest of our story, to increase the amplitude of our humanity. And, you know, it just occurred to me that I've been trying to think of some, I mean, that might be actually a, a utility for the war in Iraq. It just seemed so senseless and without foundation. And yet we are just now becoming, I think, aware as a country about how wounded we are as a result of that. And hopefully this will bring us to a, a wider vision of our capability, particularly with a woman uh, in a higher governmental uh, mm -hmm. post. Who understands process rather than product. Yes. See, the, uh, the process is very important. Now, as a woman looking at the last, what, say 75 years, I look at the early 1930s, well, the 1930s, when we were wounded by a depression, okay? But at the same time, America had a ton of shadow. The treatment of the black people, the treatment of the native peoples, ton of shadow, plus many other things. The ravaging of the land, you know. And we projected that shadow very easily, thank you very much, onto Europe, Hitler, etc., Stalin. Come 1945, the end of the war, we thought of ourselves as the good as the best, the kind as the nicest. Some of that was true. I mean, the Marshall Plans, etc. We took that whole shadow and we reprojected it onto the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Now, from the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the fall of the Twin Towers in 2001, there was a 12-year parenthesis of time when we could have done so much to really deal with these shadows in very deep and powerful ways. We did not. 
It became the corporate culture of greed. It became galloping materialism, and we did not. So then what do we have now? We have that which we feared in the 30s has incarnated in our own administration in a kind of fascist form, and a form that does not understand the ecology of cultures, the genius of other people, the fact that what we think of as democracy might not work in the same way with cultures that have entirely different histories, and our desire to impose our modality and way of being on people who have got to discover their own form. You know, and in an organic way. In an organic way, not to speak of the corporate contracts that are involved in right, the oil, etc. Right. But this is something that we're seeing in our time. Now, at the same time, while America is being demythologized all over the world, because when I first began traveling years ago, I can assure you, oh, you're American, oh, God bless President Truman. Well, he hasn't been president for a very long time. That's okay. He built us this reservoir. God bless. You know, and we were always celebrated for being American. It was American, uh, not just America the beautiful, it was America the kind, the generous, the valiant, the brave. I mean, it really was... The, the place of freedom. It was the place of the great lure of becoming. You don't hear that anymore. You know, sometimes you get spit at. Sometimes I really wish I could wear a maple leaf, you know, Canadian. When I'm going. But, and I'm joking, but, but the thing is, people come up and they say, we're so sorry for what happens that America has been destroyed by its administration. And I say, don't worry about that. America is not the administration. America is a tremendous country of spirit, of heart, and we will recover, and we are doing so. But we were due for that descent into hell. We were due for that, because America was enormously blessed in the canon of nations because it received the psyche and the hopes and feelings of so many people from all over the world. And America had been mythically the place of that land beyond the western waters where people would find a true opportunity. And that's an enormously heavy fact of our existence. Land of the Golden Mountain. And also the land where, really in many ways, the oldest modern culture. What do I mean by that? The first culture to completely go through the Industrial Revolution, the Atomic Revolution, the Racial Revolutions, uh, the Agricultural Revolutions, the Outer Space Revolutions, and, of course, the Inner Space Revolutions. In the canon of nations, we are a very old country. And now in our postmodern form, we are in the pathless path. We don't yet have the mapping of the next place. And that's why so many people are being driven inward to find that higher path, that deeper knowing, the next unfolding of historical possibility into time. But it will only happen by going inward to the green world within that can then help green and reseed, reseed the wasteland without, as in the great stories of the search for the grail of Parsifal. But it's without a guru. Yes, guru is spelled G-U-R-U. <laughs> That's what I keep saying. Well, <laughs> but I'm thinking about, you know, in this last momentum, uh, I've really watched uh, a cultural hypnosis occurring, particularly with, with the religious right. But I'm happy to say that um, uh, people are waking up and, and making some, some more decisions about uh, uh, that we are going to repudiate torture, that we are going to repudiate uh, the uh, suspension of habeas corpus. You know? um, 
So in the closing moments, what words do you have for us about, about the future and about uh, uh, what's coming up from your view as a world traveler with such an extraordinary base of experience and knowledge? You know, there's so much coming up and there's so many different probable futures that one has to turn to poetry to find it. And there was a poem that was written in the middle of a play in 1951. And the play was by the great English poet playwright Christopher Fry. And it was called A Sleep of Prisoners. And it was about waking up. And just quoting some lines from that play tells us, I think, where we're going. And it went like this. The human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries cracks, breaks, begins to move. The thunder is the thunder of the flood, the flow, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now. When wrong comes up to meet us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul men ever took. Affairs are now soul-sized. The enterprise is exploration into God. What are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake. But will you wake for pity's sake? Gene Houston, thank you so much for being with us. And would you give your contact information again, please? Well, it's www.genehouston.org. Thank you. To order CDs of this and other of my shows, please go to my website, www.attunement.biz. That's A-T-T-U-N-E-M-E-N-T dot biz, B-I-Z. Or call toll-free 1-877-833-833. 6220. Again, that's 1 877 833 6220. Or in the San Francisco Bay Area, call 415 721 9977. Again, 415 721 9977. This is program number 28. <laughs> 